Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The world's leaders are getting together in the UK at the end of this month to discuss how to tackle climate change. Meanwhile, fuel prices are rising higher and higher. Oil prices are now over $85 and they continue to rise to $100 maybe. In the UK and Europe, gas is the problem. It's pushing up the price of heating and some factories are having to close because their operations are no longer profitable. Gas prices are way higher than when they peaked in 2008. It's constrained supply that's the issue, partially because renewables are not performing as much as they might. In fact, wind, solar and hydro production has all fallen in the UK this year, whilst demand for power has increased. So we're facing an energy crunch. And how do we get out of it? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, one way of getting out of this energy crunch is to use more coal and oil, and that's certainly what they're doing in China. In fact, in the UK as well, in Q2 this year, demand for energy increased by a quarter. Uh, Demand for petrol increased 41%, for gas by 25%, but electricity fell by 8%. Gas, the problem there was, whilst demand rose by a quarter, production fell by 41%, making the UK more reliant on imports, mainly from Russia, and hence the uh, price crunch. And electricity production fell because renewable electricity generation fell. We had a 14% fall in Q2 in wind generation because of lower average wind speeds, and solar and hydro were also down because of the weather. Now, some of us have come to the realisation that this is all short-term. The long-term, if we're going to help prevent climate change getting considerably worse, then we're going to have to consume less energy. Other people think that we can do it by simply switching to renewables without really compromising our lifestyle. Well, that doesn't seem to be working too well for us at the moment, does it? Boris Johnson is one of those people who thinks that uh, can be achieved, though. But the UK this winter is going to be a country where it seems people will have to choose between uh, whether they uh, use energy or whether they consume food. Uh, Take your pick. I mean, Steve, even if we stuck with our current energy levels... Can we really replace fossil fuels with renewables? It, it, uh, it's not going too well at the moment. Yeah, it, it's a big ask, and the thing is we've, we've got nowhere near it. And in fact, when you, when you look at um, what, what we call not, not so much renewable, but non-CO2 energy sources, uh, fundamentally the, ma- the major factor in that has been hydro for a long, long time. Uh, and then because of a, a large, a substantial number of European countries went the nuclear route, particularly France, um, mm. uh, back in the 50s and early 60s, uh, it's also nuclear. Now, we've had declining levels of nuclear, no increase in, um, in hydro for, you know, since probably the 70s, and the c- result is that the level of renewable energy as part of total energy at the global level has never got past 15%. So 85% of what we consume in terms of energy is fossil fuel-based. And um, so, yeah, what that, what, yeah. what are your thoughts on nuclear? Do you think it's a one alternative? Yeah, I mean, I'm because I was you know, I did my demos against nuclear power and nuclear uh, weapons back in my youth, as uh, most 
progressive ability. Everyone did. Most lefties end up yep. doing. That's true. Um, <clears throat> and I was my, my my point was always sort of a, a physics point that how can you have a power station uh, which is being irradiated, uh, where the irradiation is going to damage the actual container vessels over time? How do you actually make that make that work in a reliable way? And um, so it was more of an engineering thought. I just you know. You, you, I couldn't imagine that you would be able to have a sustainable system where the actually energy source itself was causing a degradation of the the walls and so on of the of the containment vessels. Now, uh, I have had you know twenty years of exposure to engineers since then, uh, a lot through my Patreon supporters, of course, uh, but also through uh, you know people I know through academic circles, and the, they've convinced me that the the modern modern technologies in nuclear reactors are far safer than they used to used to be and need far less regulation costs because of that safety and the real thing is 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 if we can actually you know pump them out the same way we pump out ships for example out of a shipyard uh, rather than having to custom build each one and going through an enormous regulatory hoops as well uh, that it's quite possible this would be um, much safer um, then certainly safer than coal because we know the uh, we know the extent to which you know coal leads to health problems, leads to deaths and so on. Far more deaths from coal-fired power stations than nuclear in their entire history. So it's you know, a long long-winded answer, but the basically I'm in favour of nuclear. My question marks come down to how fast we can roll it out. Uh, but even on that front, mm. I've had you know, some of my uh, colleagues on on Patreon tell me that they think that we we could within ten years. Uh, with a, with a you know, concerted effort to build you know, modern nuclear power stations, it would be feasible to have them you know, replacing that 85% that's fossil fuel based in a matter of a decade. Uh, I still I still think there's got to be resource constraints. There've got to be problems about you know, scaling up the production of, of those facilities that rapidly. Um, but the 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 overall argument, the energy density of nuclear is so much higher than anything else we've ever used, including oil, that if we can find a way of tapping it technologically successfully, then it gives the high-density energy that was really the basis of developing Western civilization ever since we discovered coal and oil. So the argument against nuclear very often, apart from, you know, apart from those concerns about what you do with the, with the waste fuel and all that, is the cost of it. So uh, and because it's expensive now, it uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the in the UK, there was talk about having it partially funded by a, a Chinese business, Chinese investment company that's basically owned by the Chinese government. So Chinese government created money was going to create a nuclear power station in in Britain, uh, whereas we could just create it with 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 government money ourselves. The the expense argument, if we accept the fact that governments can create money. Uh, sort of goes away, doesn't it? Unless it's using resources which are very scarce. The only issue is that we uh, expect the private sector to supply so much of our fuel um, that it would be unfair for the government to step in and say, well, okay, we're going to fund this thing that's going to replace what you're making money out of. But then that raises the fundamental question, doesn't it? Should you allow the private sector to be responsible for supplying the energy for a nation? Well, it also comes down to some some of the simply accounting issues involved here because uh, if you've got to borrow the cost of capital of a, of a, of a corporation, 
uh, and you've got something which is going to have a, you know, like a 30-year, 40-year life uh, and a, a long construction lead time as well, it ends up being that the, co- the, the cost of finance alone is the major reason why it's expensive. If you did the same thing where the government mm. could seem to say, well, you're budgeting for the X amount of money for a nuclear power station this year, um, and it's, it's not paying, not borrowing, it's not paying the borrowing costs, then that makes the, the public provision much cheaper than the private. And you can get the private sector and they're saying, okay, we will pay the private sector to do it if necessary. If you find there's a private firm that's better at building nuclear reactors than the government itself, you finance it with government money, but you avoid the cost of finance and drastically reduce the cost that way. Well, yeah, and it could be as simple as, and we were talking about this last week, weren't we? You know what they're doing in the United States. Uh, let's just uh, let's just create a trillion dollar coin. Uh, so it's going to cost a trillion dollars for a nuclear power station. Uh, someone's going to build it for us. We'll we'll get that coin over to you this afternoon, just as mm. soon as we've minted it. Well, over to the central bank, and then the central bank will send you a trillion dollars in a trillion pounds in, in British uh, British notes. Yeah. So that's. That's the real way it works. But, yeah, it's, it's something where the cost of finance and the cost of regulation are, and, again, I'm going from my engineers tell me, the major factor in the, in, the, in the high cost of nuclear, and it's feasible to have much, much lower uh, cost nuclear, probably competitive with solar. Uh, the, the difference is that the, the, the sheer density of the energy means we can use the current uh, distribution system we have for electric power, whereas it's if you do solar and you try to have you know solar on the roof and connect it to the grid you can do it but you're effectively trying to you know pump water from your house up to the dam uh, whereas the, the the system was designed for the water to flow from the dam to your house so the, the the infrastructure we have at the moment for distributing electricity is much better suited to having a, a high power site uh, which then pumps the power down to the users rather than the reverse direction which is what's required for a uh, a standard uh, a solar uh, connected to the grid uh, running from people's you know, personal installations. Although, I mean, there are people talking about, you know, this idea of local mesh networks where everyone's got solar and, uh, and other forms of creating energy and you share it amongst your neighbourhood. But it, it, and well, I've then, always then thought that, that sounds like, it sounds like a neat idea because we can equate it with the internet. But, but the uh, trouble but is you, you, you don't because the internet, I mean, the other thing with the internet is, you, you know, it's internet is global. Uh, your network is local. And if there's a cloud over, over your house, there's a cloud over your neighbor's house and the energy yeah. level drops. So you, you have all these issues about the amount of extra capacity you need to cover the fact that solar is, you know, in, in for, for, for half the year, less than 12 hours a day. Mm. Um, uh, intermittent, not at all at night, etc., uh, etc. Et then it's you have to have you have to have more capacity. You've got to have battery storage. That the hassle about energy is that it's uh, it, 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 the provision the, the demand has to be almost identical to the supply, or vice versa. Yeah. Supply has to be identical to the demand, and that makes uh, the much much harder to handle than a, 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 another commodity where you can actually store it in a warehouse for a while when it's not sold it doesn't degrade so, so the interconnectedness happens better at a global scale so if you have those uh, high intensity uh, creators of energy and they are interconnected globally so that uh, perhaps you can manage capacity on the, on that basis or well, maybe you don't need to if, the, if the, the amount of power generated is so huge but it, it's it's the global level isn't it what you're saying and I was, yeah, I was just thinking there I was thinking imagine if you actually just had the internet and you're told well actually the internet is very local you can only get web pages that have been created 
within 25 miles of you, uh, which is, you know, which would be great for people living locally here because they get the Steve Keen podcast, which might be the only distraction they get from the Surrey County Council website, which would be just about the only other thing on the internet. So, uh, <laughs> so thank God it is global. Uh, but yeah, so interconnectedness, is that important or not? It's just the creation of energy that, because uh, um, part of the, the, the reason I raised that was because this whole interconnectedness thing was part of the reason that Margaret Thatcher said that we need to privatise the, uh, the the energy industry in the UK so there is more competition and more international competition. So we're going to bring, you know, build links that really didn't exist to, to Europe so we could play on the international markets. With this crazy idea back then <laughs> that Britain would be, a, would be a net creator and we would be exporting so much energy to, to the rest of the world. That was the, the reason that Britain wanted to be connected. As it turns out, you know, we are... Uh, having to get all our, not all our energy, but, you know, we have vast quantities of the energy that we consume comes from overseas. A lot of it comes from Russia. So the, and, you know, as to the, the competition, because the idea was, you know, more competition would mean that there would be more innovation. You know, that's the, that argument that's always given. And so we, we went from six big energy companies to over 70 individual suppliers, but most of them are marketing companies you know that uh that, that are buying wholesale and selling retail and, and not hedging enough and therefore they've all been falling you know a few a day uh during this crisis so they've got a, a, basically a call center and a billing system uh and uh, you know so that's not really um you know competition in the true sense and certainly it's not work because look what's happening they're they're falling by the wayside they i mean you could argue they were keeping prices artificially low because they weren't uh, doing stuff like storing energy. And, that, you know, there's another thing as well. So because everyone was focused on selling the stuff, people were less concerned about generating it because that's more complicated and certainly weren't worrying about stuff like, um, you know, building up reserves. So Centrica, who, uh, which owned British Gas when it was privatised, had a big storage facility off the Yorkshire coast, but it became unsafe and it was too expensive for them to repair. So they closed it. So back then we had nine or ten days of gas storage in the UK. Now we're down to just a few days. So that, you know, all those things which are expensive become a concern. And the private industry isn't too concerned about it because that's sort of like a long-term one-in-50-year event. We're just concerned about how much money we're going to get tomorrow. And this has actually been, been you know, the experience of privatizing energy virtually everywhere, um, because the whole idea was, you know, it's it's the whole myth of supply and demand. You know, uh, just let the market set it, and everything's going to be perfect. Um, but because it, 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 electricity demand is so volatile, um, you know, and and you can overload because we we design the system to be close to the capacity needs. You, you don't have a lot of overhead, and then if there's a period of increased demand, then the then the the need for energy uh, can overwhelm the capacity of the system and you get a huge price spike. So in Australia, uh, I had a, a guy I was in, uh, in touch with at some time who was actually involved in the designing the electricity market there. And he asked me a little question at one stage. He said, um, how, how many, in how many hours do you rank uh, per year do you reckon firms make their, make their profit? And I, I'll save you trying to guess. The answer was about six because there were six hours of the, of this maybe six days it may have been, but a trivial part of the entire year, uh, where the energy prices per kilowatt were over a thousand dollars, 
and if you weren't operating for those particular hours, if you happen to have your station offline at that stage, you'd lose money for the whole year. Uh, so the volatility was so great that the idea was they were going to, having, having deregulated and privatised and, and made competitive the price setting in the wholesale market, they're going to then transfer that to the retail market. But they realised if they did it, it's quite possible you could you know, have a cold night and Granny turns the two-bar radiator on and uh, wakes up in the morning with a, with a $2,000 bill for staying warm overnight. And they yeah. realised they simply couldn't do it at the retail level. So we've never seen uh, the flow through to the retail section having the same price volatility as applies in the wholesale. Well, you and, and, and as you are providing something where there is a base demand and say that sometimes that demand by, might increase by 10% and, uh, but only for very short periods of time, you, you're not going to build for, the, for, the, for those periods when the demand increases above the base amount because it's going to cost you too much and you're not going to get enough back from it. So or you're if, going to if, charge if, an enormous price for it and then causes instability through the whole system, which is what you're seeing right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that is, yeah. And, and look, you know, let's look at that because in March 2021, uh, you know, not that long ago, the average price of gas per therm uh, T-H-E-R-M I'm not the, there's a definition of what a therm is I think it's, it's how much power is needed to boil water or something I don't know but anyway it was, it I was think it's a British, this is called a British thermal unit isn't it B-T-U yeah yeah, okay, but yeah, what, yeah. what is it exactly? But anyway, uh, whatever it is, it was 40 pence in March 2021. In October, it had risen to 400 pence, so a tenfold increase. Mm, mm. And, uh, you, you know, you could say, well, oh, that's just market forces. You have to live with it. In fact, that is pretty much what Boris Johnson is saying. That's his reaction to all of this. He obviously thinks it's up to the markets to decide. Uh, but, you know, there's old people who are not going to be able to pay their heating bills uh, in, in Britain th- this winter because of that. And and to make it worse, I mean, the, the answer from the government is, well, we've got a an energy price gap. So cap, I should say. So if you if you use two thousand nine hundred kilowatt hours of electricity and twelve thousand kilowatt hours of gas, the cap is set at uh, one thousand two hundred seventy seven pounds per year, which is a one hundred thirty nine pounds increase on the year before. So I'm not quite sure. I think it's a very small percentage. So a small increase in in that cap, but a big increase in you know a tenfold increase uh, in just a few months in the wholesale price. So what you've got there is a lack of supply or very expensive supply and a retail price that is going up a little bit but not a great deal. That is not going to change consumer behaviour, is it? So people will keep on using that power even though the supply is being short, uh, is, is, is falling or becoming more expensive. Yeah, so, it's one of a market fantasy failed in, in, a, in a, you know, an extremely complicated industry. Uh, where I mean, Richard Dennis in Australia makes a, a good line about this. He talks about all these different companies marketing identical electrons, and and charging <laughs> different ways you can pay for exactly the same electron. So there's yeah. no. It, it is all marketing. It has got nothing. The the product has to be moving electrons. That's what you're getting. You're fluctuating or, or direct kind of. That, that's that's your choice. Uh, whether they fluctuate or they go in, go in a line, that's that's the only uh, differentiation you can give with the actual end result of electric power. But we put all this you know, huge market complication on top of it, uh, and of course it's you've got that unique feature. You, you're saying you, you can't have a buffer for electricity in the same sense you have a buffer for goods like you know, for, for products like wheat or sugar or flour or any any other consumer product which can be stored in a warehouse. Yeah. 
I wonder how Margaret Thatcher would be seeing this situation now, given that she was the one who privatised the energy markets in the UK. Uh, you know, as I said, to engender competition that uh, that Boris Johnson is happily seeing destroyed right now. But as you're saying, to to that point, the companies being destroyed are just marketing companies. Uh, so no one's going to get too upset about less marketing companies on, on the planet. But um, it, it, the concern is, isn't it, that the the infrastructure is what's falling by the wayside because it's being driven by marketing people rather than engineers now. Yeah, and the, I mean, it, it, it worked better when you let the engineers run the damn thing. Uh, and this is the whole idea that you had an engineering-oriented uh, industry. You were trying to provide the energy needed for industry and for consumption. Uh, you weren't worried about the profitability so much. You you wanted to cover your costs, but you have a, you know, a basic markup on, on your costs for the sale price. Um, and you are, your, your whole focus is on the industrial infrastructure. And now it's all on the marketing. We've forgotten the infrastructure, like you mentioned, that oil storage, the gas storage site being shut down. And then consequently, all you've got left is the marketing, which means volatile prices, but you don't have the, the physical capability to supply the energy. Yeah. If you were a commercial company and you said, well, OK, I'm just going to keep the reserves. Uh, so it's harder with with electricity, obviously, because but with gas you can store it. I don't know how long for, but if you say, well, okay, I can store all this stuff, uh, and then uh, when when supply runs short, I'll wait till the last possible moment till everyone's really suffering, and then I'm going to charge a mozza for it. You would have thought that would be a commercial model. I mean, I'm sure that was the, the that was the belief, wasn't it, when it was all privatized? Someone would do that because they're going to make money out of that situation, and that's going to help balance out the market. But the fact is, no one has been doing it. Those reserves have been falling. Britain's now stuffed. How stuck is Britain? I mean, this is asking from the outside. What is the impact on? Is any energy prices rising, or is there, is there energy just not being available? Well, the wholesale price has gone up ten times, Steve. Uh, is that enough for you? Uh, the, 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 the retail, the retail, the retail price, price has gone because of the energy cap. Mm, so that's mm. my point that if you the companies are going under because they can't charge more. So there's you know companies some companies are saying well we've hedged really well but hedged to the extent that you're expecting prices to rise tenfold. No, uh, no one really knows. And so there's a couple of things happening here. One is that you know it's it's the uh, it's it, it basically uh, it, it it's the perfect storm in the alternative sources of energy creation. So it's not just, you know, gas being pumped to your house. It's obviously uh, gas-powered power stations as well. Uh, And there's no alternative sources because wind, for example, it's been the worst year for wind. In the UK, so those even some with of those, Boris Johnson in charge, even uh, if there's a way we could tap his speeches and power, mm. and if, if we could find a way to tap into Boris Johnson's speeches, like the one he gave at the uh, Conservative Party conference, and we could tap that energy and use it for the for the good of the British people, uh, then then that would be fabulous. Uncanny, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> but no, we we can't do that. But um, yeah, so even with that, uh, but we, we, so no wind, and obviously we've got petrol prices rising as well. So it's um, you know, and then the other factor in all of this is Vladimir Putin has been uh, cutting supply, you know, not been supplying as much to Europe as well. And there's only one pipeline, I think, which which links the uh, Europe. There might be two. One of them went offline, I think. So there's a shortage 
through of energy capacity. itself, yeah. Of, well, shortage from the source and then how it's uh, interconnected back into Britain as well. So that's gone up, and and the the the, the alternatives are also expensive. So it's all of these factors at the same time, and then the fact that we haven't got any reserves. So I think you know someone was saying we've got two or th- at any one time we've got the capability to store just a couple of days or three days of uh, of of gas supplies. So it's real time stuff. So the moment there's any supply disruption, you feel it straight away. Yeah, so, that's what I was actually that's what I was actually getting at because um, one my you know, my focus comes into how. How, how well does the economics understand energy? And the answer is virtually not at all. Mm. And what what we, the, the, I was looking for a particular illustration of this, just in some work I've been doing on on the climate change and how our neoclassicals have stuffed that up. And uh, the, 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 their idea of modelling production is to say you have capital and labour in, goods goods out the other end. No role for energy, no role for raw materials. But I've finally found one paper where the person modified their production function to include labor and capital and energy. And then they did the standard old way that they do it. They gave a, um, uh, a coefficient that they raised capital to a power, which was equivalent to the capital share of GDP, which is about 0.3. They raised labor to the labor share, which is about 0.6. Six five, and they raised energy to the what was left, um, which was pretty much based on the share of energy as a percentage of GDP. And their coefficient at that time was 0.03. Now, um, my little calculation was: if you use this model as a guide to what's going to happen if there's a drop in the amount of energy available, let's say we had, let's say the little catastrophe takes out, I don't know, Belgium. Okay, we, you know. Uh, AMOC disappears, gigantic storm, Belgium gets wiped from the map, you know, to throw in Netherlands and Luxembourg for good measure, they're all gone, and think, holy shit, this is serious, we've got to cut back to just use energy which doesn't put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. How much of the drop would there be in energy supply? The answer is about 85%. What does economic theory tell you will happen to production if you have an 85% fall in energy supplies? The answer is production will fall by 5%. Right, the logic for that being? Which is absolutely, the logic being that there is this tiny coefficient for energy of 0.03. So, you know, you're raising it to that tiny power, a gigantic change in energy has a trivial impact on your prediction of output. Um, and what I've been, you know, with my work has been saying, well, it's crazy to regard energy as an independent input to production. You've got to put energy into machines and into labour for them to work. So rather than having energy times labour times capital, which is the way the neoclassicals do it, I'd have energy as an input to capital and energy as an input to labour. And then you can use the labour and capital coefficients. That ends up giving you a coefficient for the energy input of a machine 10 times as high as the neoclassicals use. So even with the other coefficients they use, where they give a higher coefficient to labour than they do to capital, simply based on labour, workers earn more of national output than, than capitalists do. So workers get about 65%, capitalists get about 35%. Uh, with feeding in that number, I get with a 95% fall in uh, energy input, you get not, not a 5% fall, which is a neoclassical prediction, but a 44% fall which is a bit more serious. And then if you take a look at the, um, um, the, the Leontief way of modelling and saying, look, output is just proportional to capital, uh, when you feed that in, you get, if you have a 50, 85% fall in energy, you have an 85% fall in output. 
So what you're seeing, you've got nothing like that level of fall happening in your energy supplies. We're talking what a two or three, maybe five percent fall in energy supplies. But you're seeing serious disruptions in the UK economy from that level. And economic theory, you say, oh, you won't even notice. Yeah, it. but we are noticing it, and you know, there's, there's absolutely because it's, it's real. It's real, and uh, you know, there, there are talks that, in fact, in reality, the best we're going to get away with. Uh, at the retail level, you know, because they're going to have to change the price cap. But the best we're going to get away with is that the, your energy bill doubles. And then the, the flow-on effect from that is there's nursing homes saying, well, we can't survive. There's, there's companies that are intensive energy users, like making bricks, for example, who are already saying, well, we're having to close now um, because we can't afford to um, to keep operating. So there's a, there's a very real flow-on effect. So that case, which will provide, you know, Britain has been a petri dish in so many ways during this uh, this COVID crisis. Here's what a no- good expression for it, yeah. Yeah, well, we are. I mean, where you, you grow know. diseases. <laughs> yeah. We grow, yeah, exactly. And we are, you know, the rest of the world can watch and, uh, and learn from all of this. So the transition to green. So the, the one thing, you know, Boris Johnson has been very, very big on uh, is trying to say, you know, we need to move very quickly to uh, alternative energy sources. And he's very big on wind, for example. Example. But the but the the problem with transitioning to to green energy, which obviously we should do, um, is that companies, if it's not nationalised, uh, energy companies will be saying, well, okay, we we know there's nowhere in the world we want to invest in fossil fuels because uh, the government is there subsidising uh, alternative energy sources. They want to change behaviour. You know, we're just going to. That's just going to stymie investment, which might be a good thing, but in the short term, it creates this big problem where you don't have the capacity to to service the nation. So, yeah, there's got to be a, a plan to transition from one to the other, and it, it seems like that doesn't exist. Oh, well, you know, the, the 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 actual. If we actually wanted to get to the uh, twenty thirty and net zero by twenty thirty, which is what's been spoken about at COP twenty six. Uh, in, in a matter of months' time, uh, you'd need to increase the rate of t- rollout of renewables and other energy forms like nuclear by a factor of five or ten. So there's no way we're on target to meet those reductions, and that means we're going to continue pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And it also means that where we have resources where we, we're already starting to exhaust the physical supplies, and that's supply, pardon me, that's supplying with oil. Pardon me, just dropped a knocked over a, a pair of scissors then, um, uh, that's supplying with oil, then the cost of production of oil is going up and that, and also gas, and that feeds back into your, your difficulties. So um, it means massive economic disruption and nothing, no, nothing like meeting the target of net zero by 2030. Well, and, you know, potentially we take a step back. So I've heard people saying, oh, well, yeah, we're going to turn the wood burners back on again. You know, the uh, people are, you know, starting to burn wood chips because it's the cheapest way of heating their house. So, uh, you know, which is making the situation worse. Will we start burning coal again because it's cheaper than uh, uh, than buying gas, for example? So, you know, as, as, it, as, as this energy crisis hits, people are going to look for the cheapest way and be less concerned about being green if it's a question between keeping the house warm or not. Yeah, and, and, and this is one of the reasons why our blindness to the role of energy in production has been such a critical failing of economic theory and also therefore government policy. Uh, mm. We've taken the level of energy we consume for granted. And uh, we, all, we also um, you know, tend to think that um, we, we don't realize that a large part of the increase in wealth we've enjoyed is the increase in energy consumption. Uh, you know, the amount of energy that we consume on a daily basis probably would have made a king weep uh, 200 years earlier. Uh, and, and, and that, 
I think it was uh, Buck, Buckminster Fuller who gave us the, you know, the idea of the, of the uh, uh, geodesic domes and concepts like that. He talked about us all having energy slaves and relying upon the energy slaves without even realising they existed. And then one day we're going to run out of energy slaves. And it may be that this, again, is a bit of a uh, canary in the coal mine for the UK, that the problems aren't just you know, particular policies in the UK, it's starting to reach the limits of particularly gas and oil in fossil fuel production, while we're also reaching the limits of what we can pump into the atmosphere in terms of carbon dioxide that those same fuels generate. So we've been getting a serious energy crunch and you guys are showing us what it looks like. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks. for pleased to be of service. So uh, can can it all be done? Uh, the... the this transition to to a, to a greener future, if we've got a whole load of, of private companies, I mean, isn't it? We, we've shown that you know, if you've got uh, private a privatised energy industry, uh, then it becomes a, a a fight between marketing companies to <coughs> offer the, the lowest price or to, to disguise the price anyway, so the consumer's confused. And by the way, here you've got to change your energy provider every every year because they'll move you on to a, a more expensive plan. So everyone spends their life switching energy providers. Oh my uh, god! It's just it's just craziness. Whereas you wouldn't have that if you just had one state provider. But uh, mm. also they've shown that they're not investing in the, in the infrastructure uh, to to provide a, a reliable uh, continuous supply of energy, uh, and that's become very evident as well. So all all the more reason for that you know it should be renationalised. But then. The biggest argument for that would be this fact that, you know, if you're going to move to, to renewables, it does need to be a coordinated policy, doesn't it? Because you're going to go through this process where the investment is just not going to be there for the, for the old technology, but you're still going to need it until you've got the new technology. So the, the private sector can't maintain that. You've got to have government money right across the board. You've got to have a coordinated policy, which you're not going to get from disparate providers. Yeah, and I, I think uh, you know, th- th- this whole problem of... Privatising was presuming a you know a nice stable future mm. uh, with no climate change issues and uh, with no you know, serious disruptions. But this we've got them both coming on in spades. So um, uh, to me, the to me the real worry is our dependence upon energy is so enormous um, that the the change in energy at the global level correlates with a change in GDP at a level of 0.8. So if you look at the variation in GDP and variation in energy, uh, they're virtually the same line. Uh, So if we have a decline in energy availability, we're going to have a decline in GDP. And and that is something which nobody's factoring, or not nobody, but nobody in power is factoring in. Uh, there's a presumption we continue having rising energy and therefore rising GDP without realising the link between the two. But if energy starts to become uh, a scarce resource and and we and we find we can't use produce as much as we'd like because of the carbon dioxide issues anyway, then there's going to be a necessary economic slowdown coming out. And yeah, we'll check back in a year to see how Britain can provide the data to support that argument. But the other side of it all as well is if you if you if you are allowing private companies to to run energy, you have private companies looking after the good of a nation uh, competing against the politics, the geopolitics. So part of the problem here. Uh, in the UK is that Russia supplies a lot of European and UK gas. Vladimir Putin is basically there to decide how much is sold. Uh, 
bizarrely, Europe moved off a long-term contract pricing for, for those supplies uh, with Russia to spot pricing. <laughs> so guess what? When pr- a deliberate move by the British. <laughs> yeah. So when supply falls, prices rise. Yeah, well, yeah. Hmm. Uh, whereas you could have contracted your way through this and then Vladimir would have kept on pumping uh, because, you know, there's a contract price. And if there's a contract price, the more you sell at that price, the better off you are. Uh, but if you don't have that contract price, then yeah, just hold back the supply and push the price up. You know, as as evidenced by, you know, the way the uh, oil oligopoly works. So, but also the interesting thing is, you know, surprisingly, uh, he's just finished building his Nord Stream two pipeline so that he can pump more gas to Europe. So Europe becomes more self sufficient, uh, more dependent, I should say, uh, on Russia. Uh, they finished it a month ago. And now they just need Germany to basically ratify it, provide the certification for it so they can turn it on. So uh, there's something going on here, isn't there? Russia playing hardball to show, you know, how much there is this need for this pipeline for extra capacity. So they hold Europe to ransom until they approve it so Russia can then turn it on. Seems like a big coincidence that this pipeline finished in September and here we are suddenly needing gas in October, doesn't it? So there's politics at play here. And and global politics, this particular one, not that I'm going to the rights or the wrongs, but I'd back Vladimir Putin over over his rivals any day on, on how well the politics has played out. So, all right, well, where are we? Uh, we, uh, we, we need to get it back in government hands, don't we, fairly quickly. And there needs to be a, uh, a, a a policy of transition faster than we are seeing. And we seem to be saying nuclear should be part of that as well. And the cost of it's not a concern because uh, governments can create the money to, to pay for it. And also because the main costs are the interest rates on interest costs on on long term funding, which the which the private sector needs and the government doesn't. So yeah, uh, you, in some ways we need a you know a, a dramatic rollout of the physical infrastructure to produce energy, both uh, where that is non non uh, coal based, non carbon dioxide based, and we've left it very very late, and uh, consequently leaving it very very late to do it. We probably will fail to do it in time, so we'll have an energy crunch coming our way over the next decade. And that will mean dramatically rising prices, which will undermine any private system. It's only a, a government provision system which could provide the finance without needing to worry about making a no, profit. But the argument would be, well, if the government does it, then you are, uh, you're, you're losing that innovation from the private sector and also the investment opportunities for the, for the private sector. But you're basically saying, well, you know, because the, the investment community can find other things to invest in. There's there's loads of other things. Just don't touch energy because that's too crucial for the for the for the GDP of the nation. No, you touch it. You you do it to a government contract. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, very good, excellent. We've not sorted it, but we know all, what the no. problem is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we know how we got here. Uh, good to talk, Steve. Catch you again soon. Okay, mate. Bye. It's another dimension, isn't it, as we come out of COVID-19, something that we never predicted, that there would be this energy crunch, which is hitting the UK and Europe particularly so much right now. Uh, we'll catch you again next week for another edition of the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.